Today we're talking about what the media did to us, all of us, part two on the special edition of the Doc Washburn Show. Welcome to the Voice of the Resistance with Doc Washburn. We're the show that pushes back against the Uniparty and lets you in on the news that traditional talk radio is all too often afraid to talk about. This is episode 336 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show for February 1st, 2023. Just so you understand where I'm coming from, I was fired by one of the biggest radio companies in America, Cumulus Media, simply because I refused their vaccine mandate. More evidence comes out all the time that a lot of people are having serious negative reactions to the vaccines. Also, I will never call Joe Biden president because it's obvious the last U.S. presidential election was stolen. I will never pretend a man can become a woman, and I will never forget about the January 6th political prisoners most Republican politicians refuse to even mention. And August 8th, 2022, the day the Biden regime's secret police conducted an unprecedented and unconstitutional raid on the home of a former president of the United States is a day that shall live in infamy. So this is a really different kind of talk show. We're unmasked, uncensored, and unfiltered. If you'd like to support what we do, go to our website, docwashburn.com, click on the button that says Become a Patron. Also, please remember to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. Okay, the theme of today's show is what the media did to us, all of us, part two. So, on part one, our last episode, I shared with you part one of a brand new article at the Columbia Journalism Review, of all places, entitled The Press Versus the President, part one. Today we're going to have part two, chapter two, The Origins of Fake News. Now you may be wondering well, why are you doing this? Let me let me give you let me give you an explanation. First of all, the great Dr. Michael Schellenberger, who writes over at Substack, public.substack.com, and is one of the people that Elon Musk has entrusted to dig into the Twitter files and release them. This very afternoon, he went out on Twitter and said this. For years, people ridiculed Trump's claim that he was a victim of fake news about alleged collusion with Russia. Now, a major new investigation by a Pulitzer Prize-winning former New York Times reporter in America's leading journalism magazine proves that he was. Okay, Glenn Greenwald, liberal reporter that I probably disagree with on most issues. In response to this Columbia Journalism Review article, he is saying this. Consider this. One of the most mainstream media reporters in history, Jeff Gerth, just published a four-part investigative series on the media's serial failures on Russiagate, in one of the U.S.'s most mainstream venues, the Columbia Journalism Review, and the named culprits and outlets are all ignoring it. Just think about the institutional arrogance and rot 
that leads these media corporations and their so-called journalists to ignore all critics, to ignore all proof that they lied, to refuse to retract or explain. And then they wonder why the public hates them. It's deserved. He says, the reason I never shut up about what they did with the New York Post's pre-election reporting on Hunter Biden's laptop is it's so vivid. Number one, they all spread an outright CIA lie claiming the laptop was Russian disinformation. Number two, everyone sees the proof that it's false. Number three, not one of them acknowledged or retracted. And then he's got a uh, got a quote from part one that we did on the last edition of the Doc Washburn Show. Today, the U.S. media has the lowest credibility, 26%, among 46 nations, according to a 2022 study by the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism. And Glenn, Glenn Greenwald says in response to this, look at this amazing statistic from Girth who again spent his whole life in mainstream media outlets. The U.S. corporate media is the least trusted out of 46 countries. How do you work in these institutions and not ask aloud, what did we do to cause this? How do we fix it? So without any further ado, let's get into part two of the press versus the president, the origins of fake news by the great Jeff Girth, who, by the way, uh, broke the Whitewater story on the Clintons back in 92 when he was a New York Times reporter. And he says, in a windowless conference room at Trump Tower on January 6, 2017, FBI Director James Comey briefed the president-elect about the dossier about him and Russia. Trump had heard from aides so-called media rumblings about Russia, but in an interview, he said he was unaware of the dossier until he met with Comey. Comey's one-on-one with Trump came after the intelligence community briefed him on a new intelligence community assessment at ICA on Russian activities in 2016. The ICA claimed that Russia had mounted an influence campaign aimed at the election but had not targeted or compromised vote-tallying systems. Its most important and controversial finding was that Putin and the Russian government developed a clear preference for President-elect Trump as opposed to Russia's usual goal which was generally sowing chaos in the United States. An unclassified version of the ICA was released the same day in Washington. The dossier, actually a series of reports in 2016, was included in the assessment, but it remained secret temporarily because a summary of it was attached as a classified appendix. So here's what Trump said about the briefing. He said, 
The only thing that really resonated was when he said four hookers, a reference to the unsubstantiated claim of a salacious encounter in Moscow. Trump's immediate reaction was that this is not going to be good for the family, he recalled. But his wife, this, this gets kind of this gets kind of gritty, gets kind of almost obscene. But his wife, Melania, did not believe it at all, telling him that's not your deal with the golden shower, Trump recalled. Trump's marriage might have survived, but his hoped-for honeymoon with the press was about to end. The dossier, largely suppressed by the media in 2016, was about to surface. But first came the ICA, the Intelligence Community Assessment. It received massive and largely uncritical coverage. Some other reporters were not convinced. Masha Gessen, a Russian-American journalist and a harsh critic of Vladimir Putin, called the ICA flawed because it was based on conjecture and incorporated misreported or mistranslated and false public statements. They criticized the major media, including the New York Times, for describing the ICA as a strong statement by they, Gerth is talking about Gessen and other reporters who weren't convinced. In an interview, Gessen said that their skepticism left them isolated and they began to lose confidence. The dossier wound up in the ICA because the FBI pushed it despite reservations at the CIA. Agency analysts saw it as an Internet rumor, according to Justice Department documents. Two senior managers in the CIA mission center responsible for Russia also had reservations, according to a memoir by John Brennan, the head of the agency at the time. Brennan testified that it didn't inform the report's analysis or judgments, though Admiral Mike Rogers, head of the NSA, told the House Intelligence Committee it was part of the overall ICA review approval process. Whatever its significance, the fact that top government officials were using the dossier in an official report and a presidential briefing was the news hook the media needed. On Sunday, January 8th, Andrew McCabe, the FBI's deputy director, sent a memo to the Bureau's leadership headlined, The Flood is Coming. He noted that CNN was close to publishing a piece about the dossier, with the trigger being Comey's brief and the dossier's attachment to the ICA. The dam broke two days later when CNN disclosed the Comey briefing. Hours later, BuzzFeed News posted the full dossier with a warning that the material was unverified and potentially unverifiable. Both outlets, CNN and BuzzFeed, cited the government use of the dossier to justify their going ahead. It was a twist to the symbiotic relationship between the media and the national security apparatus. Usually, reporters use pending government action as a peg for their stories. In this case, the government itself cited the media for its actions. James Comey, 
in his 2018 book, A Higher Loyalty, wrote that CNN had, quote, informed the FBI press office they were going to run with it as soon as the next day, unquote. So, quote, I could see no way out of, quote, telling Trump. Comey also cited CNN's imminent disclosure in a subsequent explanation to Trump, according to Comey's notes. Ben Smith, then the editor of BuzzFeed News, said in an interview the decision was a journalistic no-brainer, especially since BuzzFeed was a slightly fringy place. A BuzzFeed reporter, Ken Bensinger, got access to the dossier via David Kramer, a close associate of Senator John McCain. He photographed the pages when Kramer was out of the room, according to Kramer's testimony in a libel suit. Kramer also testified he would not have granted access to Bensinger if he knew BuzzFeed would publish. Kramer declined to comment after I sent him an email explaining what this article would say about him. Bensinger had been vetting the dossier, but was on vacation at Disney World with his family when CNN aired its story. A BuzzFeed editor called him to say the publication planned to publish the entire document, a possibility that had not previously been discussed, according to what Bensinger said in an interview. A few minutes later, in a call with Smith and other editors, Bensinger voiced his opposition to publishing the raw material, but was told the decision had already been made. Smith declined to discuss Bensinger's role, suggesting I ask him directly. Bensinger joined the New York Times in August. Smith left last January after two years as a media columnist to co-found new global media outlet entitled Semaphore. Though many in the media later criticized Smith's decision, some even called it fake news, Smith held his ground in our conversation. He said some publications had problematic and secret relationships with a dossier sponsor or author that prevented them from revealing the information. Columbia Journalism Review defended BuzzFeed's decision at the time, but in 2021, with the dossier's credibility crumbling, Kyle Pope, Columbia Journalism Review's editor, said that was a mistake. Wolf Blitzer, a CNN host, said shortly after the story broke that, quote, CNN would not have done a story about the dossier's existence, unquote, if officials, quote, hadn't told Trump about it, unquote. CNN, in its story, also said the sources used by the author of the report, described as a former British intelligence agent, soon to be outed as Christopher Steele, had been checked out over the past few months and found to be credible enough. Was it, like, close enough for rock and roll? I mean, this is not horseshoes, right? But I digress. It turns out that a few weeks after the FBI began checking out the dossier in the fall of 2016, it offered Christopher Steele as much as $1 million if he could offer corroboration. And according to court testimony by an FBI official in October, he couldn't. 
provide the corroboration. Christopher Steele, in response to my questions earlier this year, wrote that his raw intelligence reports were meant only for client oral briefing rather than a finished and assessed written intelligence product, which would have contained sourcing caveats. Thus, Steele wrote, the quality of the dossier reports was fine in my opinion. He said only one minor detail had been disproved, with the rest either corroborated or unverified. In response to follow-up questions, he provided additional corroborative information, but it was mostly off the record. In a lengthy 2017 interview with the FBI, Steele attributed a large majority of the dossier to his primary subsource, according to the FBI report. But in response to my questions, he declined to discuss the work of his main source, Igor Danchenko, a Russian living in the U.S. CNN's story claimed Steele's investigations related to Mr. Trump were initially funded by groups and donors supporting Republican opponents of Mr. Trump during the GOP primaries. But the sponsors of the dossier, writing in a book in 2019, made clear the dossier came later as a separate project and the research trove commissioned by anti-Trump Republicans was never shared with Christopher Steele. Steele confirmed that in his response to my questions. Other news outlets made the same mistake, and CNN repeated it in August 2018. Though when the Associated Press got it wrong in February 2018, the news agency ran a correction the next day. CNN, in a deep dive into the dossier in November 2021, correctly described the dossier sponsors. The 2017 CNN story later won the Merriman Smith Award from the White House Correspondents Association. The citation noted how the network story made the dossier part of the lexicon. But it would be the fallout from the dossier, even more than the document itself, that would be the most enduring legacy for Trump. More on that in a moment as the Doc Washburn Show continues. If you try to buy a car recently, you realize there's such a chip shortage, you may have a hard time finding what you're looking for. People I know have actually bought vehicles from hundreds of miles away from where they live. That's where Red River Auto comes in. Red River Auto is a big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including the freedom to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV the way you want to. You can buy online, and they'll drive it to you. No matter where you are, Red River Auto wants to make your car buying experience as easy and transparent as possible. Red River Auto Group has perfected the online buying process. Just go to redriverauto.com and pick from hundreds of new and used vehicles. You can purchase your vehicle online. If you have any questions, one of Red River's trained experts will help you through the whole process. Red River Auto makes car buying online easy. Your whole car buying process is completely transparent. If you want to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV, order online from the nationwide car dealer that believes in freedom 
the dealer that will deliver your vehicle to your front door, no matter where you live in the continental U.S., RedRiverAuto.com. You will be glad you did. Now, you've probably heard by now our friend Mike Lindell has a passion to help everyone get the best sleep of your life. And he didn't stop by simply creating my pillow, the best pillow ever. Mike also created the best bed sheets ever. They look great. They feel great, which means an even better night's sleep for me, which is crucial for my busy schedule. My wife and I just love sleeping on our Giza Dreams bed sheets. Now, Mike is offering the best deal on his Giza Dreams bed sheets. You can get a set of Giza sheets for as low as $29.98. The first night you sleep on these sheets, you'll never want to sleep on anything else. Mike is making a special offer for my listeners. You can get a set of Giza sheets for as low as $29.98 just by using promo code DWS. And right now, a set of pillowcases for only $9.98. In this economy, instead of buying a new bed, rejuvenate your bed with a MyPillow mattress topper for as low as $99.99. MyPillow also has blankets in a variety of sizes, colors, and styles, like plush, waffle, or gossamer, for as low as $29.98. Get huge discounts on duvets, quilts, down comforters, and so much more. Use that promo code DWS, and you'll get huge discounts on all my pillow bedding, including my pillow Giza Dream sheets, for just $29.98. Now, I'm wearing my new My Slippers moccasins right now. I had no idea. Slippers could feel this good. I wear them everywhere, in the house, wear them when I go out. And I didn't know also that you could wear my slippers moccasins with no socks in 15-degree weather and your feet not get cold. They're amazing. Right now, save up to $90 on my slippers, slip-ons, and moccasins. Marked down to just $49.98 by using promo code D. WS. Not only that, Mike is having the biggest closeout sale ever on his sandals and slides for as low as nineteen ninety eight. What makes my slippers different is Mike's exclusive four layer design that you're not going to find in any other slippers. My slippers patented layers make them ultra comfortable, extremely durable, and they help reduce stress on your feet. You can wear them anytime, anywhere. Now, Mike Lindell's other passion is to support. American entrepreneurs, and bring manufacturing back to the good old USA. For years, people approached Mike with great products but had no way of marketing them. MyStore.com was created to give those people a voice and a platform to bring you their amazing products made right here in the USA. MyStore.com has all kinds of great deals on automotive products, bath and beauty, books and video, clothing, decor items, food and drink, garden and patio, health, home improvement, household essentials, kitchen and dining, personal care, sports and outdoors, toys and games, and so much more. But to get the great deals, whether from MyPillow.com or MyStore.com, make sure you use that promo code DWS. And remember, that doesn't stand for washed-up Democrat Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz, oh, no, no, au contraire. The DWS stands for Doc Washburn Show. 
MyPillow.com, and MyStore.com. Quantities are extremely limited at these amazing prices, so please order now. Just use promo code DWS. All right, let us return. Let us return to this amazing article. We are on part two of the Columbia Journalism Review's article from longtime New York Times reporter, Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter Jeff Gerth, entitled The Press Versus the President. And part two is called The Origins of Fake News. So where we left off, talking about Christopher Seale's dossier, the article said, but it would be the fallout from the dossier, even more than the document itself, that would be the most enduring legacy for Trump. At a news conference the next day, and again, this was like very early, very early in his presidency. Trump said, I think it was Russia that was behind the hacking and Putin should not be doing it. He won't be doing it. Russia will have greater respect for our country. Now, after Trump trashed CNN for its report, the network's correspondent, Jim Acosta, interrupted Mara Eliasson of NPR to ask a question as part of a response to Trump's comments. Trump declined his question, saying, You are fake news. The first time he had publicly labeled an individual journalist using those words. Trump would go on to make the words a hallmark of his presidency about once a day in his first year alone, and the phrase became Collier's Dictionary's Word of the Year for 2017. Jonathan Carl, ABC White House correspondent, in his 2020 book, Front Row of the Trump Show, wrote that Acosta was, in fact, rudely interrupting Mara Eliasson, and most reporters saw it that way. More broadly, Jonathan Carl said the media coverage of Trump was relentlessly and exhaustively negative rather than striving for fairness and objectivity and did as much to undermine the credibility of the free press as the president's taunts. A year later, Jonathan Carl wrote another Trump book entitled Betrayal that called out what he called or what he referred to as the former president's lying and incompetence, culminating in what Jonathan Carl called the betrayal of democracy at the end. Carl acknowledged his criticism could make him sound like a member of the opposition party, but the ABC correspondent was okay with that. He added, so be it. Well, it didn't take long for Christopher Steele's name to become public as the author of the dossier. Bradley Hope, then at the Wall Street Journal, said in an interview that he discovered Christopher Steele's name after talking to two people in the private intelligence world. They quickly told him the BuzzFeed published reports contained clues indicating they were Steele's, including the exact style and the shoddiness of it. Other sources, he said, verify Christopher Steele's role. Steele, in his response to me, accused one of the journal co-authors 
Alan Cullison of a breach of confidence with Kramer, the McCain confidant who provided the dossier to BuzzFeed. Steele went on to also attack Hope for what looks like a post hoc cover story, adding in a subsequent reply that his explanation seems implausible based on the formatting his company uses. Finally, Christopher Steele linked the story to a politically partisan line taken against me and others by the Wall Street Journal to benefit Trump and the Republicans. Yeah, I think, uh, I think maybe he protests too much. Hope in an email called Steele's Claim 100% False, adding that Steele's conspiracy speculation leads Hope to doubt the whole analytical framework Steele uses to view the world. Collison, in an email, said Kramer did not tell me Steele's identity, and the story of Steele's identity was born of Bradley's work. Kramer declined to comment after I disclosed all sides of the dispute to him. Now, again, Kramer was right-hand man to the, uh, well, the late Senator John McCain. The New York Times quickly weighed in after the Wall Street Journal disclosure, first with an explainer that said it would not name the research firm and the former British spy because of a confidential source agreement with the New York Times. Yet hours later, the paper did just that, publishing another story that identified Fusion GPS as a firm that hired Christopher Steele. The online version of the explainer was later altered to identify the parties, but the newspaper never disclosed the change to readers. The Wall Street Journal and the New York Times stories were not well received by Fusion GPS. At first, they said they feared for Christopher Steele's safety. Then, they felt the New York Times' behavior was improper because it had unilaterally published material it had learned off the record. At least this is what the founders wrote in their book. Hours after the Times story ran, the Washington Post upped the temperature on Russia even more. Columnist David Ignatius disclosed that incoming National Security Advisor Michael Flynn had phoned Russia's U.S. ambassador several times at the end of the year, according to a senior U.S. government official. David Ignatius noted the talks had come on the day the Obama administration had expelled Russian diplomats retaliation for the country's hacking activities. So he questioned whether Flynn had violated the spirit of an unenforced law barring U.S. citizens from trying to resolve disputes. Ignatius went on to write that it might be a good thing if Trump's team was trying to de-escalate the situation, but Ignatius didn't know the substance of the conversations. Hours before his story went online, Ignatius appeared on MSNBC, and while not disclosing his upcoming Flynn exclusive, said it was hard to argue against the need to improve relations with Russia. The existence of Flynn's talks with the ambassador was known by Adam Entus, a reporter then at the Washington Post, but he held off writing anything because the mere fact of a contact wasn't enough to justify a story. Adam Entus, now with the New York Times, said in an interview it could have been something innocent, something he would be praised for. 
On the heels of the David Ignatius column, the FBI's investigative tempo increased, according to FBI records, and the Senate Intelligence Panel announced an inquiry into Russia's election activities. The House Intelligence Committee announced a similar effort later that month. Two days after the Senate announcement, Bob Woodward, appearing on Fox News, called the dossier a garbage document that never should have been part of an intelligence briefing. He later told me the Washington Post wasn't interested in his harsh criticism of the dossier. After his remarks on Fox, Woodward said he reached out to people who cover this at the paper, identifying them only generically as reporters, to explain why he was so critical. Asked how they reacted, Woodward said, To be honest, there was a lack of curiosity on the part of the people at the Post about what I had said, why I said this, and I accepted that, and I didn't force it on anyone. Trump at the time tweeted a thank you to Bob Woodward and asked the media to apologize. That, of course, never happened. Trump's relationship with the media by then had reached the point of no return, according to a former aide. As Trump prepared to take office, the possibility of another Watergate was on the mind of some reporters, several journalists told me, intensifying the competition. Intus explained to me there was a feeding frenzy to try and be first with the story. The day before Trump's inauguration, the New York Times featured a story entitled Intercepted Russian Communications, Part of Inquiry into Trump Associates. The piece, once posted, evoked a strong reaction from Peter Strzok, who was leading the FBI inquiry. He texted, No substance and largely wrong adding the press is going to undermine its credibility. Hours later, Liz Spade, the New York Times public editor, posted a column criticizing the October 31st piece, which reported that the FBI had found no clear link between Trump and Russia. Spade wrote that the story downplayed its significance and disclosed that the FBI had asked the paper to to delay publication. Spade also contrasted the paper's relentless coverage of the Clinton email matter, relentless being her word, with its timid pursuit of the Russian investigation in 2016. Dean Baquette defended his handling of the story to Spade. After the column came out, Baquette quickly emailed several colleagues saying Spade's piece was really bad, mainly for its disclosure of confidential information regarding deliberations about whether to publish the Alpha Bank matter. One year later, Baquette told Wimple at the Washington Post, quote, We would have cast that October story differently, but it was never meant to give the Trump campaign a clean bill of health, unquote. In an email to me, Spade complained that the New York Times had two standards. Before the election, she wrote, the October 31st piece was downplayed because the paper didn't know whether the allegations held up. But after the election, the Times produced a steady stream of stories about whether Trump conspired with Russians to win the election without knowing whether the allegation was actually true. Trump told me he noticed the difference in coverage once he took office. Not only 
did he have to run the country. He had to fight off unbelievably fake stories. Spade, a former editor of the Columbia Journalism Review, left the New York Times a few months after the column was published, and the position of public editor was ultimately abolished. Even as those debates were unfolding in the New York Times newsroom, the paper was about to land what it thought was its bombshell. The paper was so sure of itself that it let a filmmaker capture internal deliberations which wound up airing in a 2018 series on Showtime called The Fourth Estate. As the story is being edited, Mark Mazzetti, an investigative reporter in the Washington Bureau, who was also helping edit some of the Trump-Russia coverage, is shown telling senior editors he is fairly sure members of Russian intelligence were having conversations with members of Trump's campaign. The story would say the conversations were based on phone records and intercepted calls and involved senior Russian intelligence officials. He asks Dean Baquette, then editor, are we feeding into a conspiracy with the recurring themes of contacts? Baquette responded that he wanted the story up high to show the range and level of contacts and meetings, some of which may be completely innocent and not sinister, followed by a nut or summary graph explaining why this is something that continues to hobble them. Baquette's desire to flush out the details of supposed contacts is similar to his well-founded skepticism in October 2016 about the supposed computer links between a Russian bank and the Trump organization. Mazzetti reports back that the story is nailed down. Baquette asks, can you pull it off? Mazzetti replies, oh yeah. So Baquette signs off, adding that it's the biggest story in years. Elizabeth Bummiller, the Washington bureau chief, adds her seal of approval. She said there will be hair on fire. As for the specific details, Dean Baquette asked to be included in the story. The reporters simply wrote that their sources would not disclose many details. The piece did contain a disclaimer up high, noting that their sources so far had seen no evidence of the Trump campaign colluding with the Russians. But in the next paragraph, it reported anonymous officials being alarmed about the supposed Russian Trump contacts because they occurred while Trump made his comments in Florida in July 2016, wondering whether Russia could find Hillary's missing emails. The story said the FBI declined to comment. In fact, the FBI was quickly ripping the piece to shreds in a series of annotated comments by Peter Strzok, who managed the Russia case. His analysis prepared for his bosses found numerous inaccuracies, including a categorical refutation of the lead and headline. Strzok wrote, We're unaware of any Trump advisors engaging in conversations with Russian intelligence officials. Comey immediately checked with other intelligence agencies to see if they had any such evidence, came up empty, and relayed his findings to a closed Senate briefing, according to testimony at a Senate hearing months later. In the article's discussion of the dossier, it described Steele as having a credible track record and noted the FBI had recently contacted some of Steele's sources. 
Actually, the FBI had recently interviewed Christopher Steele's primary source, a Russian working at a Washington think tank, who told them Steele's reporting was misstated or exaggerated, and the Russians' own information was based on rumor and speculation, according to notes of the interview released later. The day the New York Times piece appeared in print, Peter Strzok emailed colleagues and reported that Steele may not be in a position to judge the reliability of his network of sources, according to Justice Department documents released in 2020. CNN quickly followed the New York Times story with a more modest account, noting Trump advisors had been in, quote, constant communication during the campaign with Russians known to U.S. intelligence, unquote. The White House, a few days later, told reporters that the two top FBI officials, Comey and McCabe, have privately told the White House that the New York Times story was inaccurate while McCabe was calling it BS. This was consistent with Strzok's analysis, but the FBI, following customs, stayed silent, according to the pool report, for White House correspondents and a former government official. The White House had told the FBI it was getting crushed on the New York Times story, according to the pool report, which most media outlets ignored. Peter Strzok, in an interview, said his analysis was done for senior FBI leadership, including Comey, Andy, and Bill, Bill being Bill Priestep, his supervisor, to say there were problems there. I emailed Comey's lawyer and a close associate seeking an interview. Comey never responded. Trump allies put out a similar message about the New York Times piece. Devin Nunes, then the Republican chairman of the House Intelligence Panel, repeatedly reached out to reporters to try and knock it down, noting his investigation, which included access to FBI and other intelligence material, had seen no such evidence as cited by the New York Times, but reporters were skeptical. One asked Congressman Nunes if he was working with the White House in some sort of coordinated effort to push back according to a transcript. Nunes, at one briefing in the wake of the New York Times piece, seemed to toss in the towel. The transcript shows him saying, I can't control what you guys write. It wasn't until June 2017, after there was a public rebuke of the story by Jim Comey, the news outlets finally saw fit to question its reliability. Cullison, the Wall Street Journal reporter who covered the issue, told me, The New York Times piece was the peak of the frenzy over Trump and Russia. Woodward said it's kind of like the Watergate burglary because it helped launch the issue. The day, wait a minute. Okay, let me make sure I understand this. Bob Woodward of Watergate fame is comparing the New York Times piece about Trump-Russia collusion to the Watergate burglary. Wow. The day after the story appeared in print, Trump held a press briefing where he called the New York Times story a joke and fake news. He was asked whether his use of fake news wasn't undermining confidence in our news media. He replied, no, no. He just wanted a more honest press. He said, the public doesn't believe you people anymore, and now maybe I had something to do with that. After his contentious 
77-minute press briefing in the wake of the New York Times story. In February 2017, Trump left for Florida, believing that the New York Times story was the final nail in the coffin, according to an aide who went with him. Soon after his plane landed, he turned to Twitter and called the fake news media the enemy of the American people, citing several news organizations, including the New York Times and CNN. All right, more coming up straight ahead about that on the Doc Washburn Show. Look, I've been telling you about how DirecTV, owned by AT&T, got rid of One American News last year, got rid of Newsmax just the other day, and yet, is it possible that you as a conservative are still giving money to AT&T, which is trying to shut down our free speech? Let me give you a good alternative. Patriot Mobile is America's only Christian conservative wireless carrier. Now more than ever, it's important to band together and support companies that share our conservative values. Patriot Mobile donates a portion of every dollar earned to organizations that fight for causes you care about. Patriot Mobile has exceptional nationwide coverage and uses the same towers the main carriers use. Patriot Mobile has plans to fit any budget, along with great discounts for our veteran and first responder heroes as well as multi-line users. I know I'm saving a lot of money with Patriot Mobile. And by the way, they have a coverage guarantee. They guarantee your cell phone coverage. When you switch to Patriot Mobile, you're shifting your support from the leftist progressive agendas of Big Mobile to the Christian conservative causes of Patriot Mobile. When you become a Patriot Mobile member, your dollars are helping to fund our God-given right to freedom. A portion of every dollar they earn is given back to the causes that support organizations that fight for First Amendment religious freedom, freedom of speech, Second Amendment right to bear arms, sanctity of life, and the needs of our veterans and first responders. Switching is easy. Just do what I did. Go to PatriotMobile.com. Or call their U.S.-based customer service team at 972-PATRIOT. Make sure you use promo code DOC, that's D-O-C, for free activation. All right. I'm delighted to tell you about the best-kept secret in American healthcare. So let me ask you. Are you having problems with sinuses and allergies? Are you experiencing dizziness, vertigo? Eczema, psoriasis, how about fibromyalgia, migraines? Well, the Arkansas Upper Cervical Center might be able to help you even if you're not in Arkansas. Let me tell you how. Your skull weighs anywhere from 8 to 15 pounds. It rests on the top bone of your spinal column, the atlas, or C1, which only weighs 2 ounces, so it's really easy for that atlas to get out of alignment. If it does, your whole spinal column can get kinked up like a chain. When that happens, your central nervous system isn't able to communicate with the rest of your body as it's designed to do. Now, I had severe hay fever for five or six weeks every spring all my life. When I got my atlas adjusted, the hay fever went away and it's never come back. I had bad migraines year-round all my life. When I got my atlas adjusted, the migraines went away and they never came back. Again, if you're suffering from sinus conditions, allergies, vertigo, 
fibromyalgia, problems with your blood sugar, eczema, psoriasis, migraines, do yourself a favor. Call my friends at the Arkansas Upper Cervical Center, 501-279-2009, for a free consultation. They've helped me. They've helped my wife. They've helped so many people we know. Please call them to see if they can help you. That number again for your free consultation, 501-279-2009. Now, if you're outside central Arkansas, just go to their website, turnmypoweron.com, click on the tab that says Find a Doctor Near You, and I sure hope you can. Now, I've been talking about how the world is going crazy with supply chain issues, record-setting inflation, sky-high gas prices, and woke corporations that stand against everything we believe in. Now, we all know how the big box stores were allowed to stay open all during the pandemic, while so many little guys, small business owners, regular people, were forced to close. The wealthiest people on earth became better off, while mom-and-pop businesses suffered. The question is, what are we willing to do about it? Well, what can we do about it? How can our voices be heard? We can make a difference by voting with our dollars. Why continue shopping? At big box stores, if you can get the items you need from a family-owned company. Now, finally, we can shop factory direct at a family-owned, made-in-America manufacturer. SwitchToAmerica.com is helping Americans walk away from the big box conglomerates. That's why Switch to America was created, with regular folks like you and me in mind. One of the best ways to get around this crazy inflation is to shop with family-owned companies that put their customers first rather than shareholders and corporate executives. A lot of Patriot influencers have come on board. I'm inviting you to join with fellow Patriots to cut off the cash flow of the big woke corporations that are trying to destroy our country. We're done with the woke globalist operation against humanity. Each of us can take market share away from these businesses that have enjoyed unfair advantages. We can choose to help each other by shopping family-owned, Made in America. Join with over 2 million monthly shoppers that have already made the switch. Let's start voting with our dollars to make sure our purchases are supporting companies that promote freedom. And now there's an even more exciting addition. Fresh American-raised beef. Raised in the mountains of Montana, near Yellowstone, this beef is known as Never Ever. Never has the animal ever been exposed to antibiotics, hormones, or vaccines. This prime or high-choice beef is shipped directly to your door. Pricing and availability is exclusive only to our members and isn't shipped anywhere else in the world. SwitchToAmerica.com is dedicated to offering family-owned alternatives for items we buy on a regular basis. Just go to SwitchToAmerica.com when it asks how you heard about us Click on my name, Doc Washburn, plug in your info, and I'll have one of my guys contact you. SwitchToAmerica.com Okay, where we left off in this fascinating article, we are on part two of The Press versus the President by Jeff Gerth, the origination of fake news. Isn't that what it's called? Yeah, the origins of fake news. So where we left off after President Trump's contentious 77-minute 
press briefing in the wake of the Times story. February 2017, Trump left for Florida, believing that the New York Times story was the final nail in the coffin, according to an aide who went with him. Soon after his plane landed, President Trump went on Twitter and called the fake news media the enemy of the American people, citing several news organizations, including the New York Times and CNN. Now, the phrase was coined more than a decade ago by Pat Cadell, a Democrat pollster going back to the 1970s with Jimmy Carter. Cadell, who passed away in 2019, became disillusioned with the party and eventually became an analyst on Fox News. He explained to the New Yorker magazine in 2017 why he wound up in Trump's orbit. He told writer Jane Mayer in the New Yorker, people said he was just a clown, but I've learned that you should always pay attention to successful, quote, clowns, unquote. Mayer reported that Trump met with Cadell in South Carolina on his way to Florida and hours before the tweet about the mainstream media being the enemy of the people. It was a few days before the 2016 election when Pat Cadell, appearing on a now defunct conservative podcast called Media Madness, said the media was on a political jihad against Trump and they're making themselves the enemies of the American people. It went unnoticed, but once Trump adopted and turbocharged Pat Cadell's slogan, the war between the president and the media have been officially declared and chances of a truce were slim. Marty Barron, executive editor of the Washington Post at the time, thought then that going forward, Trump would vilify the press, actually dehumanize us. That's what he told the newspaper in 2021 upon his retirement. Just after the 2017 tweet, Marty Barron offered a strong response from the press, even though Trump had not included the Washington Post in his list of enemies. Speaking at a conference, he said, We're not at war with the administration. We're at work. The New York Times had its own take on the tweets, what they called escalating rhetoric, and Trump's relationship with the Washington Press Corps. A story published one week later, co-authored by the paper's White House correspondent, explained how Trump, quote, has stumbled into the most conventional of Washington traps, believing he can master an entrenched political press corps with far deeper connections to the permanent government, unquote. Well, see, if I may digress here for just a second, maybe that's part of the problem, that we have a permanent government. Okay? Anyway, that echoes how NBC's chief foreign correspondent, Richard Engel, described the leak of the dossier on MSNBC's Rachel Maddow show hours after it was posted January 2017. The intelligence community, Richard Engel's senior intelligence source, had told him, had decided to drop the dossier like a bomb on Trump because they were angry and wanted to put him on notice that they needed answers to the Russia-related questions swirling around him. For Trump and his allies, Engel's remarks... And the New York Times account described what they saw as a deep state out to get the president. In the days after Trump's declaration, the New York Times surveyed its new digital subscribers, millions of whom flocked to the paper during his presidency, 
to better understand their motivations. The administration's vilification of the press, one subscriber replied in a typical response, according to new digital subscribers survey data provided to me by a Times staffer. Donald Trump would often call the New York Times failing, including the day after the controversial story about Russia Trump ties, but in fact, the soaring digital subscriber base throughout his presidency offset the steady fall in revenue from print subscribers and advertising. On March 1st, 2017, the Times stood by the accuracy of its explosive story about Trump's Russia connections, but tried some clarification. Whereas the first story cited four anonymous sources, now the New York Times had found, quote, more than a half dozen officials said to have confirmed contacts of various kinds, unquote. Then, however, the story muddied the original question of whether Trump associates had contacted senior Russian intelligence officials by noting that the label intelligence official is not always cleanly applied in Russia. FBI officials thought the story was a mess. Messages later made public from that day indicated the Bureau thought the New York Times would try to correct its mistakes from a few weeks earlier and save their reputation. But, as Peter Strzok saw it, the paper was doubling down on the inaccuracy. Strzok met with reporters from the paper the next day, according to FBI records. When I asked him about his dealings with them, he said that, quote, anytime I talked to the media, it was at the direction of and with the participation of members of the FBI's Office of Public Affairs, unquote. Then New York Times editor Dean Baquette's original concerns in mid-February about distinguishing between innocent and sinister contacts were not addressed in the March 1st story. Then two days later, another New York Times story, Trump team's links to Russia, addressed the problem while referencing the disputed February story. The article noted it would have been, quote, absurd and contrary to American interests, unquote, to avoid meetings with Russians before or after the campaign, and that the repeated Trump-related contacts involved, quote, courtesy calls, policy discussions, and business contacts, and nothing has emerged publicly indicating anything more sinister, unquote. One of the writers interviewed Konstantin Kilimnik, the former Ukrainian business partner of Paul Manafort's, who ran Trump's 2016 campaign for a few months, and whose name appeared in the February story about Trump aides overheard talking to senior Russian intelligence officials. Kalimnik was described in the article as having been under investigation in Ukraine in 2016 on suspicion of ties to Russian spy agencies, but the article said no charges were brought. Kalimnik, born in Russia, told the New York Times he had never been questioned. If he did have any such ties, he said they would arrest me. Kalimnik, in an email to me, said his interaction then with the New York Times arose because two Times reporters joined a background talk at a dinner with a friend. As was often the case, the news cycle shifted within hours. Early on a Saturday morning, Trump tweeted that his predecessor, Barack Obama, quote, had my wires tapped in Trump Tower, unquote, before the election. The claim was quickly denied, 
by spokespersons for Obama and the federal government, and a new line of attack against Trump was opened. Trump says he based his tweet on something he saw on Fox News that morning. He said in an interview, I was watching Brett Baer Saturday morning referring to an episode that ran the night before, and he had used the words spying on my campaign. Trump thought the tweet was innocuous until an aide told him, Sir, the lines are lit up. A transcript of Brett Baer's show, Special Report, had him talking about a wiretap at Trump Tower with some computer in Russian banks, adding that the Obama administration was pretty aggressive with a couple of FISAs. Now, let me tell you just a, a housekeeping note here. Brett Baer's special report runs at 6 p.m. Eastern weeknights on the Fox News Channel. Ordinarily, it's not repeated later on in the evening because after um, Trace Gallagher's late-night news program from midnight to 1 Eastern, You have repeats of Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram, and then at 4 a.m. Eastern, they start with their early morning show, live. Now, Saturday morning is going to be different because they don't start an early Fox & Friends show at 4 a.m. So this would mean that I don't think they even start until maybe 6 a.m. Eastern Saturday morning. So you got to put something in there, and that's probably how Trump saw Brett Baer's show from Friday night, early, 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 because you know this guy is an early riser. Anyway, I hope that clarifies things. For the uh, handful of people listening who might have stayed up all night watching Fox News Channel before. Anyway, most media went big on the wiretapping flap. The next day, James Clapper the former director of national intelligence under Obama, went on Meet the Press to say there was no such wiretap activity. He also said that during his time in office, which ended January 20th, 2017, we had no evidence of such collusion, speaking of Trump's campaign in Russia. The Post put the collusion denial at the end of its story while the New York Times ignored it. March 20th, 2017, James Comey appeared before the House Intelligence Committee and gave official blessing to the collusion narrative running rampant in the media. He testified that the FBI was investigating the nature of any links between individuals associated with the Trump campaign and the Russian government and whether there was any coordination between the campaign and Russia's efforts. Before Comey's testimony, Adam Schiff, ranking Democrat on the House Intel Committee, read an opening statement in which he quoted from the dossier's unsubstantiated allegation about Carter Page meeting with a sanctioned Russian official close to Putin in 2016 to discuss an extraordinarily lucrative business deal in exchange for the lifting of sanctions. The California Democrat would go on MSNBC two days later to state that there was more than circumstantial evidence now of collusion. 
He offered no substantiation. Adam Schiff declined to comment through his press aide, Lauren French, who said in an email, this isn't something we're going to move forward on. The Washington Post did a major story a week later that seemed to burnish the dossier's main conspiracy allegation. It didn't hold up, though. Two weeks after that, the Post followed with a disclosure of the Carter Page FISA surveillance, a story that turned out to have significant omissions. The Post landed a long story about Sergey Millian, a Belarusian-American businessman, on March 29, 2017. The top of the piece identified Millian as a source behind the dossier's most serious allegation, a well-developed conspiracy between the Trump campaign and the Kremlin, the same ground covered by the Wall Street Journal and ABC back in January 2017. The claim that Millian was a key informant whose information was central to the dossier was stated without any attribution or sourcing. In 2021, the Washington Post retracted the parts of the story describing Sergey Millian as a source for the dossier after John Durham, special counsel looking into the origins of the Trump-Russia investigations, indicted Christopher Steele's main source for lying to the FBI. Durham alleged the fact of Millian being a source had been fabricated. The Washington Post editor's note explained that Durham's indictment contradicted information in the March story and additional reporting in 2021 further undermined the account. The Post also deleted parts of a few other stories that repeated the allegation that Millian was a dossier source. After the retractions, the Post editor, who replaced Barron, a woman by the name of Sally Busby, said to the Times that the paper had been very skeptical about the contents of the dossier. Some Post reporters, though not the authors of the piece, had called the contents garbage and BS. Busby and other Post journalists declined my request for an interview. A Post spokesperson said that the piece was part of an effort to scrutinize the origins of the dossier and that the paper had made it clear how hard it was to verify the dossier. In early April, the Washington Post story on Carter Page landed, calling the surveillance the clearest evidence so far that the FBI had reason to believe during the 2016 presidential campaign that a Trump campaign advisor was in touch with Russian agents. Such contacts are now the center of an investigation into whether the campaign coordinated with the Russian government to swing the election in Trump's favor. It noted Carter Page's effusive praise for Vladimir Putin and mentioned Adam Schiff's congressional recitation of the Carter Page allegations in the dossier. Relying on anonymous sources, boy, that sounds familiar, it gave a vague update on the dossier's credibility by saying some of the information in the dossier had been verified by U.S. intelligence agencies and some of it hasn't. At the New York Times, the newsroom was irked about getting beaten by the Washington Post. Peter Strzok texted to an FBI colleague a few days later, Times is angry with us about the Washington Post scoop. But the Post scoop was incomplete. Its anonymous sources mirrored 
the FBI's suspicions but left out the Bureau's missteps and exculpatory evidence as subsequent investigations revealed. It turns out that the secret surveillance of Carter Page was an effort to bring in heavier artillery to an FBI inquiry that in the fall of 2016 wasn't finding any nefarious links as the New York Times reported back then. Agents were able to review emails between Carter Page and members of the Donald J. Trump for President campaign concerning campaign-related matters, according to an inquiry in 2019 by the Justice Department Inspector General. FBI documents show the surveillance of Carter Page targeted four facilities, two email, one cell, and one Skype. Still, even with the added surveillance capability, the investigation had not turned up evidence for any possible charges by the date of the Washington Post piece, which came four days after the secret surveillance called FISA for the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act was renewed for the second time. By the way, Carter Page was never charged with anything. Now, the Inspector General Review also found that the FISA warrant process was deeply flawed. It relied heavily on the dossier, including the fabricated Sergey Millian allegation of a conspiracy. Furthermore, the IG report said the warrants contained 17 significant errors and omissions, such as leaving out exculpatory information about Carter Page, including his previous work for the CIA and comments he made to an undercover FBI informant. And by the time of the Washington Post piece, the dossier's credibility was collapsing. The FBI knew the CIA called it Internet Rumor. And on its own, the FBI, according to the IG report, did not find corroboration for Christopher Steele's election reporting. Spokesperson for the Washington Post, who would only speak on background, said the article on Carter Page was fair and accurate and meant to reflect how deeply the FBI's suspicions were about Carter Page. They acknowledged the story was incomplete, noting that at that time there was a lot that was not publicly known. Now, by the spring of 2017, Trump was more than uneasy with Jim Comey. In one of his chats, he told the director his policies were bad for Russia because he wanted more oil and more nukes, and the FBI inquiry was creating a cloud over his, Trump's, dealings with foreign leaders, according to Comey's notes. So I guess it's like, look, why are you thinking I'm colluding with Russia when my policies are actually bad for them? But I digress. Finally, Trump had enough. He met with senior officials, and his deputy counsel told him that firing Comey would prolong, not curb, the FBI investigation and possibly result in the appointment of a special counsel, according to lawyers briefed on the meeting. The president acknowledged the dire prognosis in the meeting, according to William Barr, who, as attorney general in 2019, oversaw the end of the Mueller inquiry. But the president didn't care, declaring, according to Barr, I'm still going to fire the SOB. And he did just that. Now, that is part two of the press versus the president, the Columbia Journalism Review by Jeff Gerth. Chapter two is entitled The Origins of Fake News. 
I plan to do part three. It's a four-parter. I plan to do part three very soon of the press versus the president. And part three is called a contested Pulitzer. A contested Pulitzer. All right. It's that time again. Hit it, Brian. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. It's the Doc Washburn Show Tweet of the Day. Brought to you by Red River Auto. Red River Auto, big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy the car, truck, van, or SUV of your choice the way you want to online. Have it delivered to your front door anywhere in the continental USA. Today's... Tweet of the day. Yeah, this is rough, y'all. I'm just telling you, this is rough. Bonchi over at Red State says, Hunter Biden blackmailed multiple employees into having sex with him. He is a predator, possibly on a criminal level. This is as bad as the Harvey Weinstein stuff, and the press doesn't care at all. All. And somebody asked where the um, where the article came from. You know, what's your source for this? And he said, the Daily Mail. That's right. UK Daily Mail. And I've always been fascinated by the fact that that the Daily Mail a lot of times breaks American news. That's always been one of those things like, okay, wait a minute. Um, why, uh, why didn't some American newspaper or magazine break this story, you know? A lot of times... A lot of times, the Daily Mail has it first. Yeah, this is this is messed up. But the question is, and the surprising thing is, that it's coming out. And we still wonder, you know, if, uh, if anybody's ever going to be held accountable, you know? Hunter Biden, if it was you or me, we'd been in jail a long time ago. Hey, look, Harvey Weinstein was a very wealthy, powerful member of the Hollywood community. He's in prison. Bill Cosby, very wealthy, very powerful, very well-known. He's in prison. So I'm just saying. Oh, oh, and by the way, this is actually on Hunter's laptop, which the FBI has had since late 2019. You know what I'm saying? So, I mean, they've been protecting him all this time. All this time. Hunter and, uh, and dear old dad probably at least a couple other members of the Biden family, 
Should have gone to jail a long time ago. As should the 51 retired members of the intel community who all signed the letter in October of 2020 saying that the uh, Hunter Biden laptop had all the uh, classic earmarks of a Russian disinformation campaign, knowing they were lying, knowing they were committing election fraud. That's my humble opinion, and you're entitled to it. You've been listening to episode 336 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. The views and opinions expressed on the Doc Washburn Show do not necessarily reflect those of our advertisers, but they love us and we love them. Today's program has been produced by Tim Terrible, directed by Mick Messy. This has been a terribly messy production. Portions of today's show will be taken overseas and dropped. If you like a transcript of today's episode of the all-new Doc Washburn Show, simply peel the roof off a Rolls-Royce panel truck and send it to Mansour's Computer Solutions, 7th floor of the Ephemeral B. Smoot Building, Whitehall, Arkansas, in care of Sheriff Mansour Sempierre X. And that's the way it is. Wednesday, February 1st, 2023.